Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, a conversation about literature and art, about duende and queerness and coping and tea, border blur and misfits and community, secret places, ragged edges. Angel House Press. I'm your host, Amanda Earl. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. This is episode 110, and it's a special episode that I'm calling Writing into Health Trauma. And I've got that ti- that title from David Naiman, who, who I was talking to and well, I was corresponding with and who runs the great podcast between the covers. So that's 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 his. I'm giving credit to him, Writing into Health Trauma. And for the episode, uh, I have with me two special guests. Christine McNair and Ellie Crowley Gardner. So I'll be talking to uh, to both of you. Hello, Christine. Hello, Ellie. Nice to see you. Nice to hear you. <laughs> Hello. See you too. <laughs> hi, Amanda, and hi, Christine. I have to say how excited I've been about this. I rarely get a chance to talk to both of you <laughs> outside of the alphabet on a printed screen. And um, Christine, I'm such a big fan of your work. And Amanda, you know how I feel about your work too. So I'm um, super curious about how our conversation will unfold and the things that I'm going to learn with you. Thanks. And this is the part where I change my glasses. I, I, I for this, for, for listeners at home, I have, I have two pairs of glasses with me for this, for the podcast now, one for the computer screen and the other, so I can read from my, my printed page. So, uh, so that you won't, you won't see these glasses, but uh, now I've changed from uh, a kind of a brown color to a pink color. So now <laughs> that's, that's the, uh, and I, the, there's some red ones for the computer that I have as well, but I'm not, I guess these are the red ones. Okay. As Virginia Woolf says in her essay on illness, illness causes people to perceive the world differently. That perception can manifest, that perception can manifest in art. When speaking about her Emmy, Katie Wimhurst, who's a, a great friend from the UK, a great writer, she writes, severe chronic illnesses like Alice in Wonderland reworked by Franz Kafka. Alice in Lost Her Land. So it is perhaps no surprise then that I come at fiction from an unusual perspective and don't always feel satisfied with conventional ways of telling stories. That's in a great a quote from a great essay she um, she wrote called Speaking from the Shadows, Writing Fiction and Chronic Illness. And I, I put this quote up because I think this uh, need to approach writing uh, um from um, different angles applies as much to other genres, including poetry, nonfiction, and hybrid work. And I think it represents to um, perhaps all three of us in in our work as well. So when I had my near death health crisis in 2009, and by the way, near death health crisis for me is one word now. So <laughs> if I say it fast, <laughs> it's compound. Just near death, there's no spaces in between that. So when I thought in 2009, I knew I wanted to write about it, but I didn't know how. And um, I started to work on Beast Body Epic in, in 2013. And so I've continued to try to figure out with ensuing chronic issues um, how to talk about it. So I invited Christine and Ellie to talk about their own health um, traumas and ongoing health uh, issues and how art and health intersect in their work and in general. So the idea is we're going to talk about our work, our health issues, and hopefully read excerpts from, from the works. If if I can change my glasses fast enough, that's the idea. See, now I'm wearing these gla- the reading glasses for looking at the computer and you're all very blurry. So that's, that's it. So um, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna start with bios. Ellie Crowley Gardner is an author, editor, and creative mentor whose award-winning books of poetry include Trauma Head, which investigate the fantastic Trauma Head, which I love, by the way, which investigates the experience of vertebral artery dissection. I should have practiced that word more. And uh, vertebral, vertebral, I don't know, vertebral, vertebral. There we go. Uh, okay, so sorry about that. Vertebral art artery dissection and stroke through textual interventions and experimental poetics and serpentine loop which considers gender and physicality through the idea of ice she is editor of two acclaimed anthologies against death 35 essays on living which i happen to have an essay in thank you very much for that a sibling book to trauma head and v6a writing from vancouver's downtown east side her poem doppelganger about medical cadavers was the first poem to be published in harvard medicine journal in 40 years a frequent collaborator with choreographers, musicians, and visual artists, Ellie is currently collaborating with Nature via a series of durational art installations that investigate the law of thermodynamics and cultural ideas regarding the passing of time. Wow, that sounds really amazing. Originally from Boston, Ellie lives in Canada, where she directs Vancouver Manuscript Intensive. And we'll also we'll have a link up to your site on the show notes, Ellie. And thanks for that. That's terrific. Sorry, I mangled ver vertebral, but uh, I don't see that word every day. So <laughs> hopefully that'll be um, our, our, our next, our, our other guest is Christine McNair, uh, also a, a friend, the author of Charm, Book Hug 20, from Book Hug 2017 and Conflict from 2012. Her non-fiction book, Toxemia, will be appearing in fall 2024. McNair lives in Ottawa, where she works as a book doctor. So that's, um, so that's it. Welcome to both of you. And I, of course, am, I'm not going to really read or, or say a bio because uh, I think everyone, everyone who's listening to the show, um, probably uh, well, if, if they they can Google me, if they you know. But I'm 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 also going to be talking about um, my book, which just launched this fall, Beast Body Epic. And Ellie wrote a, a lovely and fantastic introduction for that. So, uh, and Christine is reading with me and Sandra Ridley. On November twelfth, on Zoom. So we're gonna we're gonna do that, on, um, and uh, there'll be a link in the show notes to the Eventbrite invitation, which you should absolutely sign up for ahead of time and not do it at the last minute. So that's that's important because I'm gonna be too confused uh, to uh, remember to let people in if they're if they're. Uh, we haven't decided whether we're doing it here in my place and we're zooming from here, or whether we're all doing it in our individual places. So we'll see. I don't know yet. <laughs> it depends on how November twelfth and everyone is feeling there. So we we heard a little bit about uh through the bios we just heard a little bit about the health uh crises but i guess can you um i'm going to ask you uh both uh and i will talk a little bit about it too can you talk about the health crisis that you experienced and the work that you wrote in response and ellie you you could talk well you can all talk about whatever you want but you could also talk about against death the collection of essays if you'd like and your and your book trauma head so there Okay. The origin story of Trauma Head is such that I was super healthy, um, unproblematic. And then one morning something happened to me and I didn't know what it was. And it took the doctors a little while to figure out what had happened. I basically was paralyzed on my left side temporarily. It didn't last long, but they called me a couple of days later with some terrifying news that they discovered that I'd torn the artery in my neck. They didn't know how this had happened. What happened after that was that I had an enforced year of non-movement. They told me, don't raise your heart rate. Um, don't put your head below your heart. Basically, I was on full hypervigilance and I was also having processing problems. My eyes were dilating at different times. Um, 
My heart was racing. I had labile emotions. I basically had post-stroke syndrome because a blood clot had gone to my brainstem. So, uh, and, and they said the worst thing possible to me, which was, we don't know if it's going to get better. We don't know if anything is going to happen, but if in a year you haven't had another massive stroke, we'll consider you healed. So I don't know about you both and how you relate to prognosis and the passing of time, but that did nothing for me. So I basically just went into full lockdown, just constantly invigilating my body. And I knew the way that when you wake up from a nightmare, you know that it's affected you, but you know, you're not going to remember the details. I knew I was in a place of magical thinking. So I started to take notes. I couldn't write. I couldn't read. I couldn't listen to the radio. I couldn't hear two people talking at once. I was totally messed up um, neurologically. And yet I looked just fine. So I started jotting down a line whenever I could into a journal that was brand new, that was empty. Some days I couldn't write a thing. Some days I could write two words. Um, a couple of days I wrote a couple lines and what they were, were reminders to myself of what I was feeling in that moment. Funny enough, I came to the last page of that journal exactly a year to the day that it happened. And I joked with myself, Oh, look, I wrote a book. And of course it wasn't a book. It was, um, a list or it was an entry or something like that. But that's what became the skeleton text of trauma head. So um, I published that and through the experience of continued healing and through the experience of um, grappling with my words, which I have to say, creating this book was an absolute joy because nobody else could tell me how to bring these words onto paper. It was completely left to my conviction and to my experience to move the words around on the page, to print them on top of each other. So they became illegible the same way the world was illegible to me. And I was able to play with the idea of creating a text that the reader would have to diagnose. So I wanted to have a very active reader and some somehow put the reader into the position that the doctors were in and also that I was in of not really knowing what's going on and to have that sort of shifting perspective. Um, while that was all going on, I realized that old adage, write the book that you need. And I was really missing other people who understood, like you both do, what it is like to have this kind of medical intervention occur in your daily happy life and to change the landscape of your inside self and the way that you interact with the world. So that is why I put out a call for essays to become Against Death, 35 Essays on Living. And I really view it as a sibling book to Trauma Head. That is the book that I was able to um, gather compatriots from this land of what the hell just happened <laughs> and to take some comfort in that. That's great. Thanks, Ellie. It's it's so funny just just hearing you talk. I I, I and and also reading Trauma Head and 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 your essay and Against Death and and the other people's essays. There's just so much I related to in the, in in what you what you say. So uh, and now Christine, what what do you want to say <laughs> about uh, your health experiences? And uh, well, Christine will be forever regretful for not trying to put a submission in for Against Death because that was on my list forever. And then bad yeah. Christine. <laughs> um yeah so for my health crisis uh I guess it's a two-part health crisis because I had uh initially what prompted the the non-fiction ebook that's coming out in the fall with book hug toxemia 
was I had postpartum preeclampsia, severe postpartum preeclampsia with both my girls um, when I gave birth uh, just afterwards. And both times it was a very scary experience, both times life-threatening. And I was completely confused by the experience of having no control and uh, my mortality being so clearly defined by my um, maternality, my maternality, like my is associated with giving birth. Um, there were just a lot of things I didn't know about preeclampsia and that a lot of people don't know about preeclampsia, which is essentially a, a high hypertensive disorder of pregnancy where your blood pressure goes really up and it can cause things like organ failure and death and seizures. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a weird one that's existed for a really long time, but um, there still isn't sufficient research um, to completely understand it. So that was part one of me looking and to respond to a health crisis in terms of in my writing. And then uh, through that, I became interested in preeclampsia. Uh, so I worked with the foundation that, that fundraises for preeclampsia. I went participated in a mentorship program um, for me on, on how to improve my health as someone that's had preeclampsia because it increases your risk for stroke and heart disease um, over the five to 15 years after giving birth. Uh, and somewhere in the middle there, I just one day, uh, and Ellie said her left side went numb, my right side went numb. <laughs> so my right side went numb and it, uh, it was just odd. I didn't feel right. And I'd done this program through the Heart Institute. So I knew that I needed to kind of take it a bit seriously because it wasn't in my normal. And, uh, because of the preeclampsia, I knew I had a risk for stroke. And initially, you know, I went to the ER, they didn't think much of it. They thought maybe I was having a migraine or something like that. And then through the process of a series of tests, again, they found something they weren't expecting, um, which in this, in my case was a heart problem. So they had a, a type of endocarditis, which is um, a type of growth on the heart valves. And they think I threw a clot and had a mini stroke. So um Essentially, that year was the weird year, that weird nine months. So I, I had these horrible um, end result of pregnancies where I had a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy where I felt really sick and it threatened my life. And then I had nine months where I had three brain injuries in a year because I got a concussion. And then I had my mini stroke and they found the heart disease. Um, and then I had meningitis, which maybe was also related. So it was just this nine month period where I had three major things happen to my brain. Um, and then that completely upended my entire life. Um, and it still has really, like it's still something that continues. So initially when I started to write Toxemia, I was focused on preeclampsia. I was interested in exploring it as an entity. It's got a lot of interesting historical um, documents relating to it because it's been known for so long. And then through the process of working on the manuscript, particularly when I was at Sage Hill that summer, uh, and I was dealing with the current health crisis, which was the heart problems and the, the post-stroke, uh, it kind of turned into something wider where I was looking at a bit more of um, holistic look at, at at how my body has been interpreted over time and how my, especially my female relatives' bodies have been interpreted by the medical system over time. Um, so kind of a, a bit deeper inter um, interrogation of what it means to be part of the healthcare system and be evaluated by that healthcare system. So. 
It's good. Yeah, I, I I remember all. of I remember those nine. I don't not exactly nine months, but I remember the 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 hell and sort of going. What again? Like no, not something else. Yeah. Like, it, <laughs> it's was, like a cursed year. It's a cursed year. Interesting. Nine months would be the time yeah. for that. Yeah, I, so. In in my case, I was I was as far as I knew, I was completely healthy, and then. In October of 2009, I suddenly came down with what we thought was um, the flu or maybe H1N1 because that was when it was um, it was quite bad. And uh, then I uh, by November 4th, I could no longer breathe. Uh, when I got to the hospital, um, I they had after uh, I was in um, emergency for many hours and then um, they finally could take me. I was finally just I don't know if I was stable enough, but they finally got me in ICU. I was intubated. It turned out I had pneumonia, which they were they had all the expensive and fancy uh, antibiotics. So they were able to cure the pneumonia. But I was still I was still getting um, I was still in I was dying. So um, they told Charles that um, I could either die in ICU or on the operating table. It was his choice. They didn't say, um, oh, you can uh, you can. Um, you know, she has this much of a percent or, you know, whatever. I don't know. They didn't say anything. like I don't know if that's what they do in, in reality or not. It's, that sounds like something from medical shows or whatever. But anyway, he had to decide. They I, they knew I wasn't strong enough to handle the um, the operation. It was an exploratory operation because they didn't know. And then when they opened me up, they discovered that I had full body sepsis and a toxic megacolon. So nobody knew uh, why I had this. And uh they remove the colon and, and here I am. <laughs> so, but uh, I mean, there's a lot of steps in between there too. Like I had an, I, I had what was called an ileostomy. So they they took part of my small intestine and they they brought it out of my body and and I emptied into a little uh, baggie called an ileostomy, not a colostomy bag, similar, just a different part of the uh, where they where they where it comes out, I guess. And then um, I had that for 14 months, and then I had a I had a rever reversal or a resection in 2011. And and I when I I started to um, I wanted to write about it, and it the problem was I at first I needed it to be a hundred percent accurate like nothing could be because I didn't know everything either because I was in I, I wasn't in a coma in ICU but I was in. Um, I was on um, short-term, like drugs that took away my short-term memory, and also I had ICU psychosis, so I was I was having really bad delusions. So Charles has had to sort of tell me a lot of what's happened. So uh, part of my needing to write about it was just needing to make sense of it all and just to even get the chrono chronology. Did this happen when 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 you see on the TV you see someone intubated? Is that what I look like? No, no, it's that you don't you didn't have a. A thing attaching you didn't need a uh, you know it was just it's just down your throat you don't you don't have any kind of tape over it or what so you know I had to I had to have all these things explained to me and I didn't know how to write that as as at that point as as a poem or um, in a poetic way because with poems I I like to play quite a lot and this I wanted to be extremely factual so I started off in January of 2010 I started writing a blog. Called Firebirds and Phoenix, which is still around. You can still read the entries in it. And I just wrote down everything that happened to me, and then I just kept writing. And people responded. Like I shared the links on social media, and I got lots of um, people telling me their own stories about their near-death health crisis or taking care of loved ones 
who'd, um, as I say, circle the drain. So, you know, that's how that's how it started. And it wasn't until 2013 that somehow I don't really remember the initial trigger for the the poetry for Beast Body Epic. But that's when I was able to start writing it as as poems. And I started with like um, 48 hour sort of um, long poem uh, in um, while I listened to Nine Inch Nails, a downward spiral for some reason. And uh, I don't know, it was sort of it was uh, it, it had the right uh, tone for me. And that's that's how the first part of the manuscript uh, started. So that's uh, yeah, that's that's my so interesting. Uh, it's so interesting that uh, Charles narrated your experience to you. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, it had to be that way because there's so much. And you know what? It, it's even funny because there's so much that I didn't know, like. I, I was on after I got out of ICU, I, I was um, on the seventh floor of the Ottawa General Hospital. And I um, I I knew some things like I knew I, I knew about the ileostomy bag for some reason that had stuck in my mind. I had some delusions about it as well. So I knew about that. But I woke up, I had a bunch of dressings over my right breast. And I'm like, what's the and it was like sticking to me I'm like what's this about and he said oh that's right your lung collapsed like <laughs> well, we forgot so that's what that was about and that is normally a major thing but that was so um there were so many things going on that 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 wasn't even something he had had a chance to tell me you know because there were so like I didn't know what that was about that was the thing I didn't know um about yeah and he had to tell me and I still to this day there are a lot of times where we discuss and there are things I learned that I didn't know and and I, I just found out recently that my my doctor, who was my surgeon, uh, he died, uh, um, I think, about 2015, which is sad. But he died of we found out he died of ALS. So that was sad to hear. But um, yeah. And, and it was funny when he stopped following me in 2011 as a, as a doctor, I felt kind of abandoned, like who will who will save me if I. <laughs> but he said that he gave me after the resection, he gave me a, or maybe it was after the. Uh, the first, uh, when I was still recovering, he gave me a 40 year warranty and when I was 46. So I have, I have a few years left to go yet. I love how you said um, when he stopped following me. Yeah. yeah. Like on <laughs> social, media. social media thing. And then you're like my ego. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's it. Yeah. They, they, I find that doc, I don't know if they, if it's just a general terminology, but I do find that doc, that surgeons, at least they use that term. They say fall I'll, I'll, or they'll follow your case. I guess they say, I follow you. Yeah. This it is a weird term as well. Yeah. Do you think shall we uh, read a, each read an excerpt from our from our work? Would you like to do that? Shall we start again with you, Ellie? Sure. So, um, one of the little tricks I have to withstanding reading trauma head in the world is to read it sequentially. So I pick up where I last left off, so that I experience the whole book and the arc of healing, and I don't just go back to the hot place of like the most intense. And I just finished um, two full readings, three full readings in wow. Scandinavia last week. So I'm going to start at the very beginning. Excellent. Seems kind of kind of uh, appropriate. So it starts with an epigraph from Saren Kierkegaard. I feel like a letter printed backward in the line. Voices flashlight where laughter is laser, clear cutting sleepiness. Unbreakfasted, we're here to work outside, repeat a schedule of health. Field exhales yesterday's heat, fog foam above the grass. We runners scissor cut swaths through this milk. None of us can be sure where we stand. We see our bodies as flash, 
reflective vest, slurry of motion. In the witching, we unspool mats, swing weights, count, bend, crack wise about how tough we are. Dew fastens on keys dumped from pockets, chilled skin, bright euphoria, shoes veiled in diamond drops. The body wakes, a market exchange of conversion, blue to red, diaphanous fingers spread, all the vessels open to cells, the matrices, the unities, dawn written inside my eyelids. Fogged breath, breathing fog, coyote swirl and still of owl. All the vesicles surge, surf miles of internal roads. Oh, adrenaline, my intimate. Oh, endorphin, biologic morphine. Ventricles push and tumble, squeeze and squeeze and receive, squeeze and receive, squeeze and receive. Sugar-coaty synapses, super slick collisions, soundlessly oblivious to the oracle. I do not think to brace myself for tragedy and minuscule. Butterfly effect across the network, T minus seconds, and sit up. If the left eyelid twitch, sit up. If the left cheek contract, up. If the forehead Prickle, if the scalp, perfect delineation, left, right, hemisphere, freeze. So cut the tongue in half and ice travel down the arm. Hand, fist, fall to mat. That tongue, now the kettlebell, instant. Lost the clapper. Wow, it's I, I I haven't I haven't heard you read that out loud before, and it was so it was so great to hear. I didn't know that's how that the the uh, forward slashes were meant to be breaths, and that really is um that's quite something to uh, to hear it. Oh, it's so great to hear it out loud. Wow, it's, <laughs> it's, it's amazing to me that I love love this book so much, and I haven't I haven't heard you read it out loud so far. But that's we're in the other other side of the of the country, so that's that's why. Thanks for listening so well. It's it's um it's really a wonderful thing to have a book develop and unfold like this. Yeah, it's great. What about you, Christine? Will you uh, read us an excerpt from your forthcoming book? This is a I can try. I I will say that the forthcoming book is not. It would be more book compact so i'm a big messy pile of piles of yeah. piles so we'll do our best <laughs> right that's fair okay uh composé my grandmother died soon after seeing her doctor she'd been feeling physically unwell he gave her new antidepressants she died of a massive heart attack within a few days. She had a significant history of depression. My mother had a miscarriage before I was born. The human resources clerk tipped her glasses to the end of her nose and declined her sick leave. After all, she said, this was a self-inflicted injury. 
After my hospitalization for depression, my high school French teacher interrogated my friends to find out the reason for my absence. He asked daily, she's not really sick, is she? Not really. He gestured at his head. Upon my return, he lowered my grade despite my test results. Lack of participation due to absence. Morantic. When my leg was caught in the escalator, it was ripping and then a heat. I held my mother's hand, an escalator full of people, of family floating and scream, the aggravation of my heat burnt leg in the hosiery section, legs kicked to the gods, floating nylon mocking me, sure, kind manager smiles and I want to bite him. I remember something but also nothing of the pain. I want to feel it. There's almost no sensation over the scar tissue, though as my leg grew, the scar has shrunk. As a child to me, it looked like Peru, a mapped out wrinkled tissue that felt nothing. Other scars mark, but do not equate in tissue damage. Mistakes flourish scars on me. The worst of it is a pattern that is only legible to me. It will die with me and my outline will be milk white. I have such little patience for perfection. I want the books I make to wear their flaws. Did you know that the smell of old books is primarily decay? Did you know that there are machines that understand the nature of that decay that smell the air? Do you ever wonder what you smell like? Raison. I watch the ceiling tick out in front of my eyes, the gurney rattles in hallways and makes faint warm screech when it turns. The attendants wouldn't let me walk to the ward. The lights are bright and I'm on a gurney and the ceiling is ticking away in front of me. The baby is at home. She is with her father. My mother, she is here. She is downstairs somewhere on her cell phone, grinding her, gnashing her fingers while she updates my father. Or is she gone already? Has she left to check on my husband? Here, then there, the same ward where I gave birth only five days before. The same smells, the same faint uncertainty, but no anticipation, only lights. To shine forth, last year's almost end, or almost stroke, or almost seizure, possible failures, liver, kidneys. Now, increased risk of cardiovascular death, two times more likely, heart-worn thin. Dreaming in a mag-sulfate haze of Margaret Kilgallen, who died of cancer days after giving birth to her daughter. Her large-scale letter forms eating up the sky. Her sly folk ladies with full ladles. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, I am so excited about this book. That was yeah. so exciting. <laughs> that was that was fantastic. I mean, I I've actually yeah, I heard a bit of that before, and and I really liked uh, it was it was it's good and and it's funny. It, I was thinking about uh, charm and, and conflict and how at least the parts that you read were a very different style from those which which had yes. more um, sort of more more um, uh, well. Uh, I mean, all your work is incantatory, but you know, I, I I was rolling my eyes more. I think for this for this one, as <laughs> we were rolling our eyes at this annoying um, annoying teachers and things like that. Yeah, that yeah, that, was, yeah. that was great. And, and I guess the uh, book doctor uh, stuff was in there too. So that was that was pretty cool. A little bit, yeah, yeah. I think about that. I thought about that in relation to when I was writing this book too, the book doctor thing. Because the, when you approach something broken as a book doctor, which in my case is book conservator, you spend a lot of time thinking about um, what life that thing, in my case books, have had 
um, and how it came to be. So you spend a lot of time doing what we would call a condition report, where you would talk about all the things that led it to that place, all the marks it carries, all the bits and pieces and how they come together and where they fall apart, and lots of things about inherent vice. So I found when I was initially writing, um, and when I was going through all the processes of all the various specialists and doctors that I still have to see, but I, for a while it was really intense, um, it was interesting to kind of consider myself a kind of uh, object under analysis and condition uh, reporting to see where all my bits are and where they're falling off. So, Did you find that you were using the form of your report, your reportage on books for this writing of this text? I think it played an influence on it because I think it, it influenced how I reported myself to the doctors a bit for when I had to report symptoms and things. You had to keep symptoms diaries and you had to talk about, you know, this led to this. And when I had this symptom, it was the sun was shining and, you know, it was this degrees and et cetera. So like I, there was a lot of that kind of um, data tracking that I do when I do work with books, too. So I think that influenced some of the stuff that ended up um, in toxemia because it was that same kind of distance but close analysis of 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 health <laughs> so you could keep you could understand it but also so i often had doctors asking if i came from a medical background because of the way i did excel spreadsheets that were color coded and <laughs> had you know exactly all the symptoms with all the variables on the top so you could so you could match a symptom then see which variables applied to that symptom and stuff because that's how my brain works it helps me understand difficult things when i when i put them in the context of of um, analyzing how it, it might happen, but, uh, yeah, so definitely the, the conservation world influenced how I reported myself to my doctors. And then that subsequently probably has influenced a bit the toxemia manuscript, which is more straightforward than I usually write. So <laughs> you feel like you're being conserved rather than healed. Is there a difference? Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Because I cannot, I cannot be fixed. That's the other thing that that took me a while to adjust to. Um, because I really, you know, you, you show up to these things with health crises and, you know, at a point or another, someone will tell you, well, this is just your new normal. And even pre-COVID, I hated that phrase so much. This is your new normal. And, you know, they were saying to me that to me when I was in the Heart Institute and I had two young kids and I could barely walk down a hallway. I'm like, okay, this can't be my new normal. I was fine, like a month ago. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, and it wasn't in the end, like I, I improved from that. And I, 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 but I still have issues and I always will. Like there is no escaping the ways in which this experience has marked me. Um, and we talked about prognosis a bit. So my big prognosis that I had a hard time swallowing, but I think I've come to some kind of acceptance is, is with the heart thing in particular, I can't fix it. There's no, there's nothing I can do. Absolutely nothing I can do. Then the, my doctors have told me this. It, no matter how much healthy I am, no matter what I do to try and make lifestyle changes, I cannot change the heart thing. And if it wants to get worse, it will. It, it might get worse. And I have no way of knowing if that's going to happen. I have nothing I can do to prevent it. It could stay the same forever. It won't get better. But it might get worse and I can't control that outcome. So that took a while for, for to sink in for me that I couldn't fix it. So I definitely do feel more like... Um, an entity being conserved rather than saved or healed or fixed because it's not possible. So I'm I'm more um, trying to work on maintaining function. <laughs> are you also... living? 
Are you living in Keats's negative capability? Is that what I'm hearing <laughs> as a poet and a health survivor? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, are you uh, are like uh, in um, in Ellie's book in Trauma Head? Uh, she has in the back uh, the notes and also uh, the Trauma Head file, which actually influenced uh, me for Beast Body Epic because I ended up putting the section in the back with the chron chronology of all the facts. And that's that's where I got the idea from. Are you, Christine, uh, do you have any plans to do some kind of spreadsheety or book conservative <laughs> type thing in your in, in Toxemia? Or is, I mean, assuming there's still time to make, do, or have you done that for the manuscript? So not exactly, but I do have something that'd be nice if it worked out. I'm not entirely sure will it, whether it will. I do have one chart, one chart in Toxemia, because it's something that bothered me a lot. And it's um, it's a chart where it has a list of symptoms. So, you know, symptoms you associate with various things. So fatigue, heart palpitations, um, you know, joint pain, things like that. And then I've done a, a list of diagnoses on the left but and how it plops in and how easily it is to get confused you know where it, you know all these things associated with heart and neurological problems how that's also attributed to depression to lesser degrees so you can see all these ways and where there's inter interplay between the symptoms and and depending on who's interpreting that data they will put you and you're more likely to get put into depression or anxiety as a woman if you're showing heart symptoms than you are anything else Right. Um, so I find that kind of interesting to look at in a table so you can really cross compare. So it doesn't, because I think it's important to think about that. You can't always just say, Oh, I'm, I'm tired. Um, yep. you know, I've got heart palpitations. I must be, you know, like, and often that gets, Oh, well, you're anxious, you're depressed. You've got symptoms of menopause, you know, whatever. And that could be that, but you should eliminate the big things first. <laughs> so do I find you, that. Uh, do you hear how much, all three of us are trying to prove things. We're trying to prove things with the data. It's so maddening. It is. I have um since since uh, that uh, since the 2009-2011 health crisis, I've been in um, ER uh, eight times for bowel obstructions. And one thing I learned um, is you have to, and I've been admitted, I think five times to stay in the hospital. And one thing I've learned is I, it's really important to be precise with my language. And I've created it. Finally, it took me till the eighth time to realize I had to write down a narrative and just yeah. fill in blanks. Last, last bowel movement, last vomit, last time I ate, you know, and, and just have that and also have a spreadsheet with I love spreadsheets, by the way, it's always lovely to hear about spreadsheets because I adore them, but I'm not really great at um, the math part, but I love the colors and the, the lists and things like that. And so I have a spreadsheet with all of the um, all of the ER visits and all of the different diagnoses and all of the things. And I've looked at what they've written in the charts. And I was really mad this last time because um, the last time I was diagnosed by the doctor on call, who was quite horrible, actually, I hope you're listening, but I hope I don't have to see you again. But uh, what they said was um, abdominal pain. I didn't even get bowel obstruction. I got abdominal pain and it was way more than just a tummy ache, you know, so the, yeah. so anyway, 
I've written everything down because the first thing they do when you go when you get to see the um, uh, is it the well actually several people ask like they at least me they ask in triage and they ask um, the 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 nurse the first nurse or uh, staff member and then the doctor what brings you to the hospital today and you have to be able to answer and I have a long thing I can't just say I have a stomach ache and I've been vomiting and <laughs> no like it's not enough. Uh, I have to make sure that they know. And they don't really read the chart. Like um, I said to the last uh, doctor that um, she, my la the last doctor I had, like, my pain was getting worse rather than going down. And she, and she said, well, I'm, I'm, I think I, what I'd like my treatment plan for you is that we're going to discharge you and then you can have follow-up and return uh, with general surgery some point later. And I'm like, but the pain is getting worse. And, uh, and, and I said, I, I, you know, I'm afraid, you know, and I said, for instance, I'm afraid of organ failure. And she basically mocked me. She sort of laughed. She tried not to, but she's like, what, do you live in the country or something? I said, no, I don't live far. But clearly she hadn't read, read my chart because I did have an organ that died. My colon died. So, you know, I've had organ yeah. failure, like, you know, like, uh, <laughs> so yeah. So I, being precise with language is extremely important and learning how to write it. And whenever I go to my family doctor, I always have like uh, my my thing written down and she's always like, oh, that's so good. Like I I told her um, last time I saw my family doctor, I said, I, I'm calling myself Mrs. Wonky Bells. You know? And she said, oh, that's delightful. Right? <laughs> but um, yeah. you know, I, I it's, so I find that writing that's one of the reasons why I had to write. Uh, later on, it's one of the reasons why I had to write, but also for myself, I needed precision and in, in what I was writing, and for myself, and then and then for other people too. So, um, as we were sort of sharing, I mean, when I I listen to the two of you uh, talk about your experiences and also listen to you read, I just I just feel like I I relate to what you're saying so much. It's quite it's quite um, strangely heartening. <laughs> oh, you know, we almost died. All these things happen to us, but we're here. So, and that's it. I guess I'll read a little bit from uh, Beast Body Epic. I put on my reading glasses, the pink, the rose glasses for that. I'm going to read from uh, the, um, oh, it's the wrong page. I'm going to read a little bit from the second section. Um, I actually did read the first section at an open mic, so I'm kind of following, Ellie, I'm kind of following your your uh, your method. Okay, so uh, between Scylla and Charabdis, on the horns of a dilemma, between the devil and the deep blue, my husband is asked to decide. Sign the form. I will die on the operating table. Don't sign. I'll die in ICU. Left to wander through oblivion. I came to on the seventh floor of a hospital. A disoriented other, too weak to move. Breathing was no longer easy after the iron lung or its modern day equivalent. The worry of lack of oxygen forcing deep breaths. Flashes of memory, dizzy heart thumping, blue lips, my husband told me later. I was trapped beneath the weight of my constricting chest, this squeezed reptilian, almost death. Charles said my lung collapsed. In ICU, they shoved a garden hose up into my chest cavity and left me with a cabbage mark, some days more purple than others. It stings in the rain. My body confounded the doctors head betrayed by torso, a belly full of sepsis. They removed my innards. I was gutless and everything got better. In the fairy tale, beauty pricks her finger on a spinning wheel, sleeps for 100 years, has nightmares about an enemy who wants her out of the way, 
They're all out to get her. The townspeople, the hospital staff were the henchmen of the queen. Doctors didn't know the cause of my almost demise. Friends and strangers offer to this day hypotheses. C. difficile, food poisoning, a broken heart, H1N1. Zeppelin blimp, Montgolfier bloated, floating, full of hot blood and rotting guts until my body became cavernous and unholy church. My swollen belly tipped the surgeon off. I was cut open. As viewed from above, the lights on poles are high up on the ceiling, aimed downward, spotlighting a body on an operating table, bathed in the bright white light used for surgery. The harmonic scalpel was seven inches long, had a comfortable handle and a curved blade that cuts thick tissue, coagulates and dissects, simultaneous and precise. Like a highway over hills, eight inches of stitches and staples of bifurcated flesh torn apart by almost death. I can still see the reaper, the hood over its eyes. I am stretched out on the narrow metal table, hands in restraints as its claws come down. I count the 82 staples as the nurse pulls them out one by one. They clatter into a metal bowl, the tin woman with another organ missing. Feather marked along or frost etched deep into and below, stalactite suspended into the dark of my body. Am I destroyed or am I armored? Was I tough? Did I hang on against all pronouncements? That's amazing. I Can I just tell you what an amazing choice it is to make an epic of this? Like that's the only choice. I'm so I'm so fascinated in how everybody found their forms, but how else could you speak about this this uh, this this journey than to use the epic? Yeah, thank you. I I don't know how I came up. I don't remember how I came up with the title. I remember one day I was telling uh, Stephen Heighton in an email, uh, our dear friend who's no longer with us, unfortunately. But I was telling him the title of the book, and he was like, "Oh, that's a fantastic title." Like he loved it. He really really thought it was a great title. So I was very happy about that. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know, uh, really, I don't know where the title came from at all. I just, it just, it just, it, ha- it has been a journey. And even the delusions were, I had outbound delusions and inbound delusions, like the delusions of of my first delusions that I remember were, were leaving for Toronto on a bus and my my um, return delusions, the last ones were returning, uh, waiting on the subway platform in Toronto in my in my hospital gown with no clothes and and uh, and no underwear and no no wallet or anything. So it was it was the strange parallel. So yeah, it did feel like a kind of a of a Dante esque kind of a of a of a journey. So yeah, and especially the delusions. So yeah, so that was great. It was great to. Uh, to, I, I, do you find that when you when you now that well, I, Christine, your book is still to come, but uh, just the act of reading the work aloud does that does that do anything for you or or do anything to you have an effect on you when you're reading it aloud? Me, me first or Christine first? Yeah, you first. You first. Let's get you first. Yeah. Oh, me, me. Okay, I'll. I'll do it. This is the this is the fun of of having this is the problem of the the try conversation. <laughs> well, that's fine. We're we're not perfect. We, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, yeah, I love. I I thought I would find it hard to read aloud, and and um, I've been really enjoying. Like some of this, I I was was actually I read part of it. Um, 
the beginnings of uh, I read a few times uh, back in 2013 and 2014. Um, uh, verse uh, Verse Ottawa uh, inducted me into the Hall of Honor, and I read part of it there. And then I, I, I that was 2014. And then I read another uh, part of it, I guess, on Parliament Hill. So both times when I read before um, those audiences, people came up to me afterwards to talk about how they re related to it. And I thought, because it's kind of fragmentary and it's kind of, it's not all um, organized in a kind of, uh, you know, like sort of traditional narrative way necessarily, right? Like yours too, like none of ours is really. So we have, we have um, lots of different ways of engaging with the text that sometimes for an audience isn't like as straightforward and you don't expect people to necessarily relate, but uh, no, they, they, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to get it published because people really related to the book as well. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, so what I feel is, yeah, I feel it does feel kind of, it feels empowering and um, it makes me happy to read it actually, which is a strange reaction. I don't know if you have that. What about you, Ellie? What's your uh, what's your experience? I have a, a similar thing. I really love reading uh, in public, and uh, I, I think too. I, I'm so convinced that I got this book right, and that it really does represent the way that I was feeling. That when I get a chance to read it, it's like um, probably the. I mean, it feels fantastic because I I'm in the words and I know how to read them, and the rhythm's really fun. And there's lots of places where I'm experimenting with my own vocal or like body position. And so that part's just truly, really fun. Um, I was at the Writers Festival uh, a couple of days ago and I heard the novelist Lauren Groff talk about her tactic of surviving, going out in public and doing so many readings just day after day after day and how exhausted she is. She says she wears a watch when she does readings, something that she never wears at home. She wears a watch. And this physically reminds her of being in the role of author which is very different from the role of writer. So when she's author, she's out there performing the book, performing the, the, the publicity of being an author. When she's the writer, she doesn't give a damn about any of that stuff, about reviews or whatever. She's in the writing. And I, I think um, my experience of writing this book was similar. So although I can be moved by the experience, it's more like the way when I'm reading it, it's more like the way an actor might be moved because I'm distant enough. I mean, I've had that experience. I think all of us have had where you're, you're reading a poem in public and suddenly you're just so back in the moment of writing the poem that you burst into tears and you can barely get the rest of the poem out. I mean, it happens. It's not a terrible thing. It's not super comfortable because I'm a very sweaty crier, but um, with trauma head, I don't do that for whatever reason. I'm able to fully embody it, but as craft rather than uh, trauma. Yeah. What about you, Christine? How are you finding reading this aloud? You've now you've read it. I've I've heard you read a, a few different um, times uh, from from it. So, uh, how are you finding it? A few times. Um, yeah, it's weird. So, I enjoy reading, like the act of reading, against my nature because I am a quiet person, generally speaking, and I don't like talking to people. But I enjoy the reading aspect of reading poetry or reading other work. So I enjoy that. And I like with anything that I read, if I feel like I have a good connection with the people in that room and I'm reading and I can get the rhythm of what I'm saying and I can get my point across. Um, the problem, 
not the problem, but the thing I've noticed with this work, as opposed to conflict and charm, I can obfuscate a bit more with poetry if I'm just doing straight poetry. If this is non-fiction-y weird, but uh, it's it's still more linear and more straightforward in terms of what I'm expressing in terms of the subject, you know, noun, verb, thing. So, and so what I'm talking about is a little bit more out there directly than what if I write a poem about it, I can go a bit sideways at it. So, and I like going sideways at things. I like being not totally clear. So I do find I struggle a bit um, feeling uncomfortable with that level of exposure um, because I talk about things that are, you know, not terribly pleasant and not terribly, it's not even that it's not terribly pleasant. It's just that it's uh, a little more raw than typically I would directly say. So that's been interesting. I guess that's the, the say. I don't I don't feel totally comfortable. It doesn't mean I hate it, but it's just it's interesting as an experience for me because I'm I'm I can get the point across with um confusing poetry, even when it's confusing through different ways, like different ways of um speech and words and rhythm and movement and again, like the kind of embodiment that I like when we read as, as poets, um, but uh, saying it in a, a straight way through a nonfiction line, even if it's a weird one, that's an adjustment for me. So, yeah. Did you, did you consider, like, did you think about writing this as, as, I mean, to me, it was poetry anyway, but, but, you know, did you. Yeah, consider, yeah it's, it crosses, it's, a, it's borderline. It's, yeah. Did you consider. <laughs> the poetry road. <laughs> Did you consider did. writing it that way as poetry? Yeah, as I did. But I, it wasn't right. Um, and I did for a while, a long while, this was a hybrid manuscript with both poetry and um, kind of more prosy nonfiction, weird nonfiction, but still more nonfiction, prosy, short things. And then it just kind of um, leaned out of that. So a lot of things in there would probably still get classified as poetry. But uh other things, not so much. And anything that was more um, very obviously poetry and very obviously, um, you know, line breaks and spacing and that kind of pulled out threads of words, a lot of that was taken out. So I don't know. I think I think it does lean into just kind of arty nonfiction weird, it's kind of straddling that hybrid line between prose poetry and literary nonfiction. Um, but I, I couldn't write it just as straight poetry for whatever reason. It just it just wouldn't work for me. And I'm I don't know. I don't know if it's a, it's it's not even that. I wonder if it is something similar to what you were saying, too, about wanting to be factual and very. This is what happened, like a witness record, right? Like, you know, because I wanted the witness to witnessing to be clear in some way, even if it was obfuscated still a little bit and still a little bit messy with words and language and play. But yeah. Ellie, when you you said, and also in, in your Against Death essay, you said you were you started out by uh, writing, just jotting down a few things in your journal and then and then you you got to the the book. Did how did you come to knowing that poetry was the right form and also that poetry of the, like the way this is, I mean, it's so heavy with sound and words upside down and just replicating how you were feeling. I mean, I, I love that especially, but uh, how did you come? I mean, did you have any, did you try, have a different trial of different doing it different ways or was it just, this is it, this is the way it has to be. You knew. Yeah. I think what Christine said sort of echoes it is like, I knew 
I needed testimony. And so I needed to get down onto the page exactly how I was experiencing the world. I couldn't do that with prose because I wasn't experiencing it linearly or with verbs in the right places or with proper punctuation. My whole world was like ellipses and forward slashes. Like everything was messed up. It was like in tarot bangs. Like I couldn't use regular prosaic narrative to express this i i if i if maybe if i were a a videographer or had like garage band skills like maybe this and i don't maybe this would have been like a pop-up book or maybe it would have been a film i don't know but i used the tools of fracture that i had that were most mimetic to my experience and i mean my author photo in the book is a section of my mri Right. Like I was, I was really trying to um, bring in my total experience. And part of that thing about the MRI was like how freaky it was to have people who know how to read these things. They're looking at intimate parts of my interior anatomy and reading them for information that I don't even recognize. Like that is a powerlessness and a freedom at the same time. Yeah. And it's just their job, right? Like, that's the other thing I found interesting to adjust to. This is just their job. Like, they go to work. This is what they do. They look at people's scans. They, you know, if they're a nurse, they help you in the, the ward, make sure you get your meals, make sure they do checks and, um, at, you know, or a good nurse or a not good nurse, a good doctor or a not good doctor. This is just their job. Like, you were just a, I mean, not that they're uncaring necessarily, although some are, but you were just um, yeah, a just like. What just like do. you're you're following, um, I don't know how many volumes you work on at a time to conserve them, yeah. or how many manuscripts I work on at a time to help authors bring their manuscripts forward into next draft. And I mean, Amanda, you know all about that too, doing all that editing work and the layout and all this. Like we're constantly attaching to uh, somebody's somebody's beautiful baby, and mm-hmm. you know, th- there's a lineup of them coming along. Yeah, yeah, seems like yeah, that's that's true, and it, it's it's weird to have that point of view. I I had an experience recently where I, I I read at an open mic, and I guess it was the first time since the book came out that I read from it, and someone decided that they would start calling the server over right as I was reading, and they were right in front of me, and oh, it made me so angry. Like, and I I've, I've dealt with a lot of different types of audiences and sometimes they pay attention sometimes they don't but no it hit me right in the gut like literally I, I didn't like it I I and I I stomped back to my my spot and swore as, as I as I sat down like I really didn't I said oh you should have just relaxed there I mean normally I would not normally I would I, I at least up to now I haven't had such a emotional reaction but I think that I think this book is very close to me so it was a good warning like just, I just have to sort of, I would like that watch that your, your, uh, that other writer was the author. Of that watch. metaphor that you just used, it yeah. was a big punch. Yeah. Like you could have chosen any other oh. expression, right? But like, that's where you're hurting. That's where you're sensitive. Yeah. yeah. So Ellie, you had a few questions you had uh, in mind as well. Maybe uh, if you, if you still have those, maybe you could also ask a few questions as well. You, you are not, not. You <laughs> I do have a thousand questions, but I don't have the Google Doc open. 
Okay, well, this is this is the question that you have. I have it open, so I, I just have to change to the the pink glasses. Since I have that, I will. This is this is from Ellie. I'd love to know where you two land on the idea of art that takes care of the maker. The trope of suffering for art, giving it all to the art, sacrificing for art is pervasive and to my mind destructive. Is there a way you have come to understand a process or concept of art that can give rather than take from your health? Which Thank I've you been for mulling over. Oh, you're welcome. I've been mulling over that like since since I read it the other day. I've, I've been trying to come up with some answer. Do you have anything to say about that, Christine, or do I have to go first? <laughs> it's a good question. I don't know. I uh, yeah, because I don't really buy the romantic idea of you know starving yourself and dying for your art and and you know giving until you bleed to death on the page. I don't really feel that too. I do feel that sometimes even going through difficult topics can be self-destructive to a degree. So you have to have a certain embodiment of self-care as part of your practice. Um, so however that lands, right? Like that you can't live in the intensity sometimes of even the most intense parts of your work for me anyways, because if I did that, I'd be living in the most intense parts of my experience that I'm translating into that work. And I, I can't do that forever. Um, I think there are aspects of reading work aloud for me that are probably healing because they have that encantory kind of effect. And I do feel that some of that by feeling that I am connected to an audience when I read and that I'm getting people into the milieu, for me, that is healing and I get um, benefit out of it as a person because I, I feel I feel of worth and that I have done what I wanted to um, in terms of conveying my experience or my fun with language or whatever, you know, whatever I wanted to get across, I feel like I've done that. Um, so that to me can be healing. And I, I do think that, um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I, I have it in me. To, I, well, it's not that I don't have it in me to be self-destructive because I absolutely certainly do. Um, but I don't have it in me to be self-destructive for the purposes of art, because to me, that doesn't work for me. That's stupid. So, but that's just me. That's just that that's my impression of it. I have I have lots of capacity to be self-destructive, but not through the, the art. I when love I, that answer. That's yeah, great. that was great. When I was um I was I studied uh, French literature when I was like 18. So I was I was studying like Baudelaire and Rimbaud and all those guys. But of course, not not a single woman in, at the University of Toronto, Victoria College French program. So um, anyway, that was interesting. But um, they I mean, you really they you really got got that um, sort of um, idea that you should be a, a, an opium addict or or a, or, a, or a, you know, or a heavy drinker, stuff like that. But I didn't really start sharing my work until I was in my 30s. So by then, I, I um, any idea that I could hold my liquor or whatever was already gone and uh, relationship stuff. Yeah, maybe I've been, I have sometimes maybe trod that line and used it for my writing. So I don't know what, and maybe I have been somewhat self-destructive sometimes in relationships and knowing that maybe I could use it for my writing. I wouldn't do it now. I wouldn't do it now, but I'm 60 now. And not that I couldn't be self-destructive now, but I had a bunch of doctors who uh, made sure I was still alive. So I feel I owe it to them to not be, but yeah, yeah I, I think that, I, I mean, and we learned a lot. I mean, 
I, I didn't really come to contemporary poetry until until I was in my 30s either. So I think sort of like the, the sort of the better examples of I mean, in Ottawa, for instance, people go and, and, and work in, in government jobs and then they go home and they, they work on their poetry. You know, I mean, it's just it's part of our lives. Like it's not I don't know if I have the romantic notion as much about um about I certainly don't believe in dying for art. There are very few things that I want to die for, you know. I don't, I don't think I don't think so. So yeah, I don't. But um, it it I'm not even you know I was thinking about this with especially with Beast Body Epic. I almost feel like and it sounds kind of crazy. I almost feel like I don't even want to write anymore. Like I I mean I have I've been I've still been writing some, but I mean there are other things I I, I have to do and or want to do. And I'm I'm I actually started working on a manuscript about. Um, trying to walk off my anxiety in this in this world we're in and 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 with the health stuff and everything else and uh so I'm starting to work on that but um I haven't been able to find an angle in and, I, and part of me says you know if this is help if this is helping me the writing of it like that's fine but do I care about doing the other part the publishing of it I don't know one of the reasons that I want Beast Body Epic to be into the into the world is because I say I, I write for um I write so that other kindred misfits don't feel alone. So that's that's the reason why I want work, my work to be in, in the world. But maybe it it would be just as important for me just to listen and read other people's work and find kindreds and and promote them and share their work. I don't know. I don't know that I need to necessarily. I used to say I have to write to breathe. I used to feel that way, and I don't know that I feel that way anymore. I feel like Beast Body Epic might be the end of a chapter. So stay tuned. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Did you have any uh, question or anything that you could think of, Christine? Or we, we've been asking questions all the way along, so it's not. Uh, don't mean to oh, be yeah. <laughs> Um. Like relatedly, like the uh, so because when I was thinking about us uh, answering that question about. To the dying for your art healing versus taking from the author i was thinking as well too that there are two things that uh women writers tend to get uh censured for one mm -hmm. is writing domestic and the other one is confessional um those are the ones that we i feel like we get hit harder with it when mm -hmm. we write about um well women and and non-binary um people get and get hit much harder with it than than male writers do um do you feel that sometimes when you're working in something that's more direct narratively related to a life experience? Do you feel censure around anything confessional? I have not had that experience. I don't know why. Um, it might just be that I'm such a bossy pants and love to talk that I don't even register if people are reacting like that. Uh, but I do... I'm very sensitive when somebody dismisses something as a kitchen poem yeah. or a grandmother poem. Mm -hmm. That makes me crazy. Yeah. I was, I was just, uh, I, I, uh, I'm trying to remember the name. I'm, I'm listening to the, not the current uh, between the covers episode, but the, the, the one before that. Uh, I think her name is Kate Briggs. I might be wrong. And she's got this, what sounds like a really cool book. Uh, where the main character is the baby, and and this is a mother <laughs> and baby, and the baby's name, Christine, is Rose, by the way. So oh, that's, 
But, and and one of the questions that David asked her is is how about whether or not you know she's gotten these reviews that kind of dismiss the book as you know it's about mothers and it's a baby book you know that sort of thing but it sounds like a fascinating book it's it's got in, intertextual it's fem, it's very feminist it's got all kinds it does all kinds of experimental stuff you know sounds like really cool and then some stupid dude you know dismisses it as a baby book like yeah you couldn't write a, this book you I know they always say chicklet and nobody ever says dicklet. Yeah, really. <laughs> That's it. So, yeah. So I, I have I ever felt like I was dismissed from my writing, you know, well, I um, and, and confessional because I've written a lot of like I, I, I wrote for a decade. I wrote erotic fiction. Right. So I and that was my I wrote smut. And and I, I also in my poetry, I have a lot of sexual stuff. And I do find uh, people tend to typecast me sometimes where like I was once at a reading where someone uh, 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 the, one of the features said they were going to uh, read a sex poem because I was there like in the audience. So they, they could read this sex poem because I was there. And I thought like, so I'm the only one who, you know, who has some kind of sexual activity is, you know, I can. So, so, you know, but I, sometimes I feel typecast over that and I haven't really been writing um, erotic fiction uh, much in a long time. And um, so like this old news to me. So yeah, they, they do. Sometimes they tend to typecast, but maybe now they'll, they'll typecast me as the, the one with Mrs. Wonky Bells. And that will be, that will be my next. Sick one. That'll be your niche now, the sick one. one well we all get to carry those uh oh yeah the one who had that that weird health thing happen to them which is fine and and and, but i i I do find that now at least with this label i even even with the label of the sex writer i also found a lot of people would would talk to me privately about their own some of their own experiences and issues and and uh, i got a lot of um people actually messaging me or, or emailing me and saying, oh, I really appreciate you writing about this because, you know, I can't necessarily talk about it in public, but, you know, I feel less alone. And that, again, that's my goal. So, uh, yeah, if if I don't, I haven't really been called uh, confessional. I kind of, I, I sort of, sometimes I write in other voices and things like that. This book feels like the closest to me that I've, I've um, maybe, maybe I've, I, maybe I'm just forgetting, but I feel like this is the closest to me that I've, I've, I've written like, um, and even in there, there's there's a lot of fairy tales and, you know, stuff that I haven't actually experienced that just sort of riffed off and stuff like that. There's a word to my one of my doctors taught me, which is supposed to be like kind of a not nice word in terms of how um, doctors view patients. But I just find it a really fascinating and funny word, which is fascinoma that I'm a fascinoma and, and he said it laughing. So he wasn't, he wasn't trying to be uh, like actually saying that I was a fascinoma, but a fascinoma is essentially like a medical mystery, mm. a patient that is so intriguing that they're an excellent source of articles and things like That's that. That's an amazing maybe- title. That's such a great title. It's such a great word, the fascinoma. But uh, yeah, I, I love that word as as a, a thing that's fascinating and confusing. I know it's supposed to also be a negative that the doctors aren't taking into consideration the, the patients as humans, um, but that's not been my experience with most of my doctors. So I, I just really love the word. I was thinking maybe now would be a good time to, if, if you're up to it, to read another uh, small part of uh, an excerpt. Do you, would you like to do that before, before we wrap up? Is that sure? All right. Ellie, you want to go first? I keep asking okay. first. <laughs> <laughs> I will go um, and I will be picking up where I left off because that is my MO with this book. So um, 
the continuation. Okay. Mist. Now I'm soundless. How to call for help. Need numb rush left turn to the center line, the skull. I feel silence where the brains don't meet. Canyon gap. Now I'm in the vase. Snap fingers, slap pound mat with some crumpled hand, kill their laughter with a monster's tongue. Dull slab. Listen, some one molasses legs unzip. Amphitheater formation, nine statues, one prone. Switch, pulled. How tripped the wire? Why fiber? Electrical disconnectal down left side, erasure of intention, silence along the left. Still, meet, blank, where body has been. Question mind, brain, I'm afraid know where this is going. That was great. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you. What about you, Christine? We're just letting letting Christine get her get her awkwardly try and find poems in her pile of edited manuscript from her trip to Banff. Well, I should say while we're just waiting for uh, Christine that uh, I will have all of the uh, links to all of the the books and and things up on the show notes as well and. Uh, I'll talk at the end. I'll talk about the forthcoming episode, and I'll also I'll be sharing the link to our reading coming up in, on November the twelfth as well. I'm also going to be reading from Beast Body Epic in Montreal at the Accent uh, Reading Series on November fifth, and in Toronto on November nineteenth with um, at the Transact Club in the living room with a bunch of uh, writers that I invited to read with me. So it's um, it's uh, Jim Johnstone, Kirby, Marcus McCann. Uh, Rezikra Revolva and Danny Spinoza. So we're all gonna we're all gonna get together. And also in October, I, I celebrate. Well, this month I've celebrated my 60th birthday. So it's also a part of all these readings are uh, are celebrations. And the the reading in, on the 12th with uh, it's with Christine and also with Sandra Ridley, whose whose new book uh, Vixen is, is just out. Actually, I think today it was its book birthday. So I, I saw it on Instagram. So yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm just gonna read what I can find. Okay. <laughs> Consequence. Plan de bon, bon volonté. At best, we make do as we wander up hillside, shuck red, pull my ditches. I suppose I am something somewhere. I suppose I press my lips to cardamom. I suppose I love disparate, ridiculous. I am entirely unopposed and ditch walking, shouldering a collapsible sink of crocodile tears. My intent is less latent than descent a fall space between knuckles. I just mean to say that I suppose we are something. Red-lipped, I stole a peach once, stole a peach once and stood there eating it. I remember qualities of hollow in a tree and how I fed it leaves. I remember my particular forms of concrete and mass. I remember those treatments to reduce inflammation. I remember a year spent grass bed with grubs underneath. 
I remember the horse stirrup flanks to, that put hooves on paths. What I mean is, what I said was, that I know I meant it at the time. When pen lifts where feet drop, dust to ash and peach to peach, perverse results aside, I am not sorry. Butterflies batter down the hatches and keep time. I bite my fingers for the salt. I walk my road. I, my intent was never. Great, thank you. Thank you for that. That's terrific. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna read from a um, a later section. I think it's. Uh, yes, I think it's. Uh, section five so um and it starts oh I, I just have to put on my pink glasses again as if i see the world better they're not even rose colored glasses just the frames are rose colored or pale rose it starts with this uh, epigraph you only have to look at medusa straight on to see her and she's not deadly she's beautiful and laughing from the laugh of the medusa by ellen Sixou. Um, I am a warrior who refuses to die, washes blood from armor. Do you like the disguise? At dawn, I begin as crone, the silver in my hair, glittering, my eyes alight and brown. A female Heathcliff who doesn't wait for permission to brood in the storm of this brouhaha, coxwoman, gigola, lotharina of lust. There's no word for my hunger in the key of feminine. I fuck because I can. A two-minute gun, a temptress, for now I give you this body for our mutual pleasure. Your hand is heavy too, and old, I note, as I trace the lines of your palm as it moves over my breasts with each caress you undo me. Take a look at this body, I asked, so he did. After we fucked, he left quietly. I brushed my long hair 100 times, flopped in the tub to play mermaid scales like armor slick and shiny. At least my tits are still good, pink and upright, barely sagging. But what if he puts his hand on my stomach and winces at the ridges the staples have made on my once smooth white skin, or his fingers meet the crater of the site where my colon once was? I thought I would read that because uh, we were just talking about my my writing uh, sex my writing sex stuff. So there's some in there. That's that's it. Uh, okay, that's it. Uh, does anyone else have any uh, anything more to add before we uh, before we close up before we close shop? I just want to say this was really fun to um, hear your work and to think through these ideas, and I'm grateful, Amanda, that you made this space for us. And Christine, it's always so good to hear your reading voice and how you just sink right into your verse. I love it. <laughs> so I'm really excited about Toxemia. I can't wait to read it. Well, Mutual Appreciation Society, because I feel the same when I hear you read. So that's awesome. <laughs> I, I feel the same about both of you. I was I was very happy you both decided to uh, you agreed to uh, be on the show and also to um, to, um, you know, that we could work out a date. It was easy to work out a date. I was surprised. So that was that was great. And, and it was just lovely to hear uh, both of you read and to read with you. I, I felt like we had this wall of strength that we sort of, not a wall, but some kind of strength beam that we've beaming out into the world and uh, resilient. A gurney of strength. A gurney of strength. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> Take that, hospitals. <laughs> All right. Thanks to Ellie and Christine for being on the show, to Charles for processing, to Jennifer Peterson for help with the intro and outro, and to all of you for listening and sharing the episode. Our next guest will be Manitoba writer and mudlarker, Ariel Gordon. 
And also, please join the virtual launch of Beastbody Epic, which will take place on Sunday, November 12, 2023, at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with me, Christine McNair, and Sandra Ridley. And yes, you have to register in advance at Eventbrite, and I've got a tinyurl.com, which is Beastbody Epic Nov. 1223. So anyway, it'll be up in the show notes. Thank you, everyone. That was terrific. Thank you for listening to The Small Machine Talks. The Small Machine Talks.